Over the last few weeks, we have been considering how the Spirit of God wants us to, wants to use us to do Jesus' work in the world. So we've been looking at that, that actually we're people of purpose. The Spirit of God wants to carry on Jesus' work now. If you read the beginning of Luke's Gospel, it says the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. Right? This is, uh, this is what Jesus began to do. Uh, I'm paraphrasing slightly. And what Jesus began to do. And then actually, he's carried on doing the same work that he was doing when he was here as a man, through his church. That the Spirit of God wants us to be Jesus in the world. And we've looked at how he wants to equip us to do so in natural and supernatural ways. I don't like the category of natural and supernatural, because everything relies upon God. If you take a step and breathe in oxygen, you do so because God allows it to happen. He wills it to happen. He empowers it to happen. However you think uh, life came to exist now, Christians agree everywhere, whether it was over billions of years through uh, processes that God put in place or in a snap of a finger, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that God did it and he chooses that you are here. You are not an accident. We are not accidents. Our natural abilities are not accidental. They're not uh, things that somehow we have apart from God. They are God-given. And yet, there is another part of life that is as valid as that, and that is as important of that as that, but which we miss. And that is what we call the supernatural. These are moments when God breaks into our world and does something we don't expect. And if I can put it this way, it's as if the whole world can see a football match going on ahead of them on a TV, but they're watching in black and white. Now, black and white are important colours. They're there in every picture. But when we become Christians, the Spirit of God wants us to come in, wants to come into our lives and say, actually, you can see in black and white at the moment, but now I want you to see in colour. I want you to see everything that God is doing in the world and recognise what he's doing and work with him to actually do more. So, to take Ben's example, Ben was healed because, or is being healed, for three reasons. He's being healed because God has designed his body and sustains his body, so it is healing itself, because God wills it to be so. He is being healed because God has equipped doctors who have worked with him to do their operations well. That's what we looked at from Genesis 1. God said to Adam and Eve, again, however you understand that story, God said to them, go into the world and subdue it. I've made you, I've empowered you, now you go and make the most of it. And thank God there are doctors who made the most of their skills and can operate on boys' ears. And then there's a third aspect, which we see, which is that we pray. And we ask God, and that occasionally God does stuff in the world that we can't explain. It's like a father who, who likes to work with his children, occasionally just doing something to take them a little bit further. A little bit beyond what they were capable of. And saying, actually, I just want you to know, I like working with you, I don't need you. You're not the business, I'm the business, and I like working with you. And that's what we're doing when we're praying for people to be healed. And in this church in the last year, we've seen occasions where people have been healed in remarkable ways. We've seen uh, moments where we speak and we offer encouragement. And it's not the normal course of events. Normally we have to walk through life and go with and work with the suffering we encounter. You know, my child has a 
thing boring into his brain that has to be removed. My daughter has asthma. I have some weird voodoo nose thing that sent me to hospital every six months or so. Right? And we have to live with that suffering and we have to work out how to overcome it with God. But there are occasions when God speaks and he says, I'm going to enter your world so you can see there's something more to this. There is colour breaking into a monochrome world. And that's what spiritual gifts are. Now there is a risk though. When everyone is talking about natural abilities or supernatural abilities, spiritual abilities or, na- or natural talents, whatever one is discussing, there is a risk that we start to use them to advance ourselves or to achieve a goal at the expense of others. So think about the great dictators of history, Mussolini or Hitler. For example, these were men, tremendously gifted men. That sounds like an odd thing to say about Mussolini or Hitler, but if you could hold a crowd of millions, thousands, in the spell of your voice and get them to do whatever you want, that is an enormous talent. And yet they took that talent and used it to advance themselves at the expense of others. Now that is egregious examples of very, very wicked men from history. But we can think of other circumstances in which we do that. Much more mundane. We have a particular ability and we use it to obtain power for ourselves. Or to pursue a goal even at the expense of others. They become acceptable collateral damage in order to achieve the goal we want. This is a particular problem for our age. Culturally, we live in a time which is characterised by a lack of proportion in what we're trying to do. What do I mean by that? Let me use a more vivid language. It's like total war. Right? Do you know what the concept of total war is? It, total war is something that was invented in the 20th century. Right? Before the 20th century, wars were quite limited. Right? You would have an army and the army would go and fight... And the rest of the country would remain as it was. And the two armies would fight each other and at the end of it, you would see who won. And it wasn't devastating for the country that lost and it wasn't devastating for the country that won because it was limited. And in the 20th century, you had this, this idea came to be seen as total war. Uh, in the First World War and the Second World War particularly. Which were times where countries went to war and everything in the country was about the war. Everything was about the war. The economy, healthcare, factories, uh, rationing, uh, travel, education, everything becomes geared up to the war. And the consequences are so devastating. All that matters is winning. And you look at pictures of Germany in 1945 or London in 1945 and you see the way that this has destroyed the countries. All that mattered to these countries was winning. And culturally, we live in a period of total war. But totally lacking in proportion. Where people and the truth are acceptable casualties in the pursuit of personal or political goals. Uh, It's often characterised as a sort of post-truth age. Post-truth age. You have your facts, I have mine. It doesn't really matter as long as we achieve the end we're going for. Actually, that is not me taking a position on the left or the right. Both the left and the right do this. What matters is the cause, and anyone who gets in the way of the cause... It's just it's acceptable to destroy them and move on because it matters that we achieve our goal, whatever happens. That, my friends, is the way of the world, but it is not the way of Christ. 
And this is actually the problem that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 13. It might seem an odd way to introduce 1 Corinthians 13, which is a lovely poem that everybody reads at weddings. But what Paul is saying is, what he's challenging is this idea that we use power and gifts and abilities to achieve ends at the expense of others, rather than for others. At their expense rather than for them. Here's a lunchtime summary. The most important goal of the Christian life is not what we can do, but who we can become. The most important goal of the Christian life is not what we can do, but who we can become. The most important goal of a Christian's life is not what we can do, but who we can become. This is 1 Corinthians 13. Actually, John, do you want to come read this? There's someone's voice other than me. It's on the screen. Don't worry about that. Um, you're there. <clears throat> if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gang, a gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy... And can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesize in part. But when the completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away ways of childhood. I put childhood behind me. And now we see only the reflection as in a mirror than when we see face to face. Now I know in part, but I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It's a famous passage. It was read at weddings. I can't remember whether it was read at the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Merkel or not, but it was certainly the subject of the the homily. And it is often read as a kind of poem or hymn to romantic love. Now, I'm very much in favour of romantic love. I think it's great. But it misses Paul's overall point to see it that way. He's arguing for something much more profound than a love song. He's not a first century Paul McCartney. He is arguing for a way of living 
and for lives of purpose that are radically different from the ways that we naturally tend towards. He's not arguing that we should fall in love. He's arguing that we should live love. I want to address three parts of what he says. What matters, what is love, and what lasts. What matters, or in long title, what has love got to do with it? Paul's first point is that spiritual gifts are important. That's what he's saying here. Spiritual gifts are important. What we do is important. He's just spent a chapter arguing for the importance of spiritual gifts. He's he's spent a chapter arguing for the importance of doing Jesus' work in the world. For the need to go out and be able to speak prophetically into situations. We thought how this happens on a big scale last week with uh, the example of William Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery. That uh, there is a need for people, for Christians to be able to look at the world and say this is not how it should be. And there is also the need in churches and in individual lives for people who can say, look, I really sense that God is wanting to say to you, you're going to break through in this situation, keep going. Or I see you and I know what you're going through and I love you and this has happened, don't worry, I'm still with you. There is a need for that. There is a need for people of faith, people who will take risks for the kingdom of God. And yet... All of those things is not as important as the character that we develop. We can achieve amazing things. If, we, if one of you turned out to be the greatest prophet the world has seen since John the Baptist, hallelujah, how much the world needs that. If I turned out to be that person, well, I'm going to be a little disappointed that my beard is not yet as strong as it should be. There's a bit of me that feels like if I ever turn out to be a great prophet, I want to be bearded. I know it's, I know it's, a, it's, a, it's a self-indulgence, but, you know, Adam, I, I, I'm envious of your beard. I'm honest. I'll be honest. It's difficult for me. I see, I, see, I see you sitting there and I think, oh, I just wish, you know, follically challenged. One of us could turn out to be the greatest prophet the world has ever seen, and yet if we are selfish and self-seeking, our work is worth nothing. One of us could be martyred for the faith. Martyred for the faith. But if we do it from envy or bitterness, Paul says, it's worth nothing. Now don't mishear him. These things are good. It's good to pursue prophecy. It's good to understand things. It's good to give your life for a cause. But if our characters remain unchanged, if we remain animated and characterised by anger or hatred or pride or self-seeking, then ultimately what we do is worthless, Paul says. But Paul is speaking as somebody who displays all of these qualities. He's not talking in the abstract. He prays in languages he understands and prays in languages he doesn't. In 1 Corinthians 14 he says, I thank God I pray in tongues more than all of you. But I am the great prayer. Paul says at one time, uh, pray at all times. Pray at all times. I don't know about you, I struggle to pray in the morning. Let alone at all times. Paul says, well I pray at all times, just pray at all times. That's the answer. Oh thanks Paul. He writes more books in the Bible than anyone else. He redefines theology and ethics, not just for the church, but for the world, in a way that has not been seen since and will not be seen again. 
If you want to trace the, the moral values of Western civilization and now of civilizations around the world, you could uh, trace an awful lot back to St. Paul. Awful lot back to St. Paul. Not everything, but an awful lot. Nobody else has had as big an impact, save for Jesus Christ and Moses, on the way the world understands ethics. Certainly in the West, and I would suggest more widely. He heals people. He raises the dead. He works miracles. He gave up everything to follow Christ. He was beaten and imprisoned. Ultimately, he will be martyred. He has his head cut off with a sword in Rome. Yeah, it's not in the Bible, but it is in history. He's not being hyperbolic. This is his life. You know, I read this and I think, oh great, yeah, if I, if I have the tongues of men or angels but I don't have love, yeah, okay, hyperbole. If I can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge and have faith that moves mountains but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And I'm thinking, well, nobody really does that. And he's thinking, no, this is my life. This is who I am. This is everything I do in my life. And I'm telling you that everything I do in my life is worth nothing if I don't have love. Speaking from his experience, he says that everything is only worth something if he is becoming like Jesus. For a Christian, developing ability is good. Do develop your ability. Prophesy. Study. Give. Help. Administer. Whatever God gives you to do, do it with all your might. Developing ability is good. Developing character is essential. Let me put it another way. The point of our lives is not what we achieve, but who we become. This raises two further questions. What is this character we are developing? And why does it matter? Why? So what and why? What is love? Or to quote Oliver Twist, where is love? I'm not going to sing it. I've done enough singing. You have to wait till Heather comes back for that. Love is not sentimental in this context. There is a good and romantic form of love. That's great. It's God-given, it's perfectly good, it's healthy. That's not what we're talking about here. This love is not romantic. It is the radical commitment to the good of someone else, even when it hurts us, and even if they don't deserve it. It is the radical commitment to another's good, even if it hurts us, and even if they don't deserve it. What's the difference with that and romantic love? Well, romantic love is something you can't control. It happens to you. You feel in love or you don't feel in love. It's usually provoked because the other person is particularly beautiful, either in what they do or in their body. This type of love is a decision to put the other first, to seek their good. It doesn't, it's not inspired because the other is so beautiful they force you to love them. It is a choice to love them and therefore they become beautiful. It is the love that God shows. And this is Christianity. Not that we are lovely and therefore God loves us, but that he chooses to love us even when we are not lovely. 
Let me put it this way. We can have a view of God that we need to make ourselves beautiful in order to earn his affection. So we kind of, we spend our time putting our makeup on. I had a conversation with Ben in the car yesterday as we were driving down to, uh, about to drive down to uh, Dad's, uh, Dad's group. And Heather was coming with us uh, because she was going to help. Uh, we were down on numbers, so she was going to help. And Ben and I were sat in the car and I said to him, Ben, this is a life lesson you're going to have to learn. Women take a long time to get ready. I'm sorry if it sounds sexist, but somebody's going to have to tell you at some point, love. This is what your life, a lot of your life's going to be like this. He said, but what's she doing, Daddy? I said, I, I don't know, sweetheart. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but you've got to, you're going to have to learn. Just suck it up. <laughs> Bring a book next time. We can do that with God, right? The idea that we, the idea that we are trying to make ourselves beautiful. Right, so we go around and we do good works, don't we? We, or if you are from a particular religious persuasion, you go to confession a lot, or we take the Eucharist a lot, or we try and do, and we're always trying. We just basically what it's doing is trying to apply makeup to ourselves, to our lives. You know, I, I, if I, if I put, if I make my lips bright and red, God will love me. So I'm going to put some lipstick on. The lipstick will be going to church. I'll put some lipstick on, and then I, 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 if I make myself a bit more beautiful, God will love me a bit more. So I'll have my my cheeks nipped and tucked, and that will be taken food around to my neighbours. And if we can make ourselves into this beautiful person, then God will desire us and he will love us and then we will be saved. And Christianity is not like that at all. It's like God saying, no, you're in the gutter and filthy dirty and you're in a mess and you're broken and you hurt people and I love you and so I'm going to come and pick you up. And I'm going to love you in the gutter. It's not a case of you making yourself beautiful and... So I love you, I love you, and because I love you, I'm going to bring you in and I'll clean you up. And I will, I'm going to, I'm going to wash your hair, and I'm going to give you beautiful clothes to put on. And That's Christianity, it's love that chooses to love someone even when they are not lovely. It is love that chooses to put the, to put the needs of another ahead of our own. What is love? It is the Son of God hanging on a tree, crucified by those He created. It is robust. It's the kind of love that doesn't keep losing its temper with people or storing up bitter grievances. It doesn't have an anger scorecard. You know, this is what love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud. You know the, you know the anger scorecard? You earn points and then eventually you can redeem them. Uh, it keeps no record of wrongs. So in, if you want a, a, an analogy with this, it's a Costa card. Okay? We can have a, an anger Costa card. That we, every time we go into Costa, you scan it, and they give you, I don't know what, how many points they give me every time I buy a coffee, like half a point or something. It seems to take six months to get a couple of free coffee. Especially a Swiss. Right? It used to be you, know, you get ten stamps, and then you get free coffee at the end of it. Now I'm, I seem to be in there for six months before something comes. But anyway, right... We can treat anger in the same way. You do a slight to me, so I put a point on the store card. You do another slight to me, I put a point on the store card. You slight me again, I put another point on the store card. This happens in marriages, by the way. Another point on the store card, and then six months in, I'm going to redeem all my points. I'd like to cash them in, please, for a blazing row, and I'm going to bring up everything that's happened in the last six months. How much can I afford? It's a love that treats other people well. Love is, is the decision to treat people well. It's kind. It's not belittling. It's not big to belittle people. 
doesn't envy people. It doesn't boast or act proudly. That is to say, it's not interested in its own advancement at the expense of others or stopping others. Love recognises that life is not a zero-sum game. I don't lose out when you progress. I progress because you've progressed. Love is robust. Here's one we feel very uncomfortable with in the modern world. Love is robust. It challenges people. It isn't interested in being nice. Love is sometimes not very nice. Because you can be nice and yet unloving. It's willing to tell the truth for the sake of others. It is willing to stand up to evil. Let me put it in a more provocative way. Love is not the quality of snowflakes who don't want their feelings hurt, but of grown-ups who want to grow to be better. It challenges people. Love protects others. It trusts others. It looks for the best in others, not the worst. Supremely, love is like Jesus. St. John writes, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. See, every single thing I've said comes out in that that, uh, phrase. The Son of God left heaven, came to earth, suffered and was humiliated at the hands of people in order that they might be saved. In order that they might be changed and transformed. That's love. What does this type of love look like? Let me tell you the story of Desmond T. Doss. This is him. Uh, The image on the left is of Andrew Garfield playing him in the movie Hacksaw Ridge. Extraordinary film. Don't watch it if you've got a squeamish tummy. Doss uh, served in World War II. Uh, he was a conscientious objector because he uh, was a Seventh-day Adventist. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's a type of Christian. Uh, and he believed that he uh, should not kill. They very strongly believe in not killing. Doss, I'm um, quoting from Wikipedia now. Doss refused to kill an enemy soldier or carry a weapon into combat because of his beliefs as a Seventh-day Adventist. So much so far. Why do I say that this is love? While serving with his platoon in 1944 on Guam and the Philippines, he was awarded two Bronze Star medals with a V device for exceptional valour in aiding wounded soldiers under fire. During the Battle of Okinawa, he saved the lives of 50 to 100 wounded infantrymen atop the area known as the Hacksaw Ridge. Doss was wounded four times in Okinawa and was evacuated in May 21st, 1945. Doss suffered a left arm fracture from a sniper's bullet and at one point had 17 pieces of shrapnel embedded in his body. The man had no gun, right? He not only refused to kill people, he refused to carry a weapon. And he kept, he could see his friends being hurt around him, and he kept running back into the battlefield. The Haxel Ridge is on top of a cliff. He literally sat on top of the cliff, lowering wounded people down while Japanese soldiers shot at him from behind. With no weapon of his own. What is that? That is love. It is a radical commitment to the good of the other. Even at the cost of your own self. It's a funny why. What endures? Paul explains that part of the reason for prioritising a character over achievement is that love lasts. Now this is going to get bleak. 
This is a clip from Chariots of Fire, which I, I realised over the weekend, I don't think I knew it before, it might actually be my favourite film of all time. I, I, I've watched it loads of times, I didn't realise how much I loved it until I found myself watching it again and almost in tears. This is Eric Liddell reading from the book of Isaiah in the Church of Scotland on a Sunday in the middle of the Olympic Games. Why does it matter? Why is it that Paul says the only thing that matters in life is who we become, not what we do? It's because everything else disappears. The reason I chose that clip is because Chariots of Fire, for those of you who don't know it, go and watch it, it's brilliant, is a film about men training for the Olympics. It is just men training for the Olympics. And Lidl refuses to run on a Sunday. I would have run on a Sunday. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't... You can have disagreements about that. But Little refused to run on a Sunday because he couldn't do it in good conscience. And he chooses to read this passage from Isaiah in which he says, I want you to understand that all of the greatness, these men at the top of their game, everything they have worked for, passes like that. It's nothing. There's Aubrey, his good friend, who fell in the steeplechase and finished way down the field. Abrahams, who ran as hard as he could, but his technique let him down and finished second. Everything disappears. I'm sorry to get sound bleak, but at the same time, we're all grown-ups. 
And there are things we need to face. Laws change. Decisions are overruled. Businesses prosper and fail. Empires rise and fall. Scientific theories are proved and disproved. Sports teams triumph and then lose. Everything we do in this life is, in the words of Proximo, the slave dealer in the movie Gladiator, dust and ashes. Everything is dust and ashes. Everything we might achieve with our lives will fall. Since St. Paul wrote these words, the Roman Empire has risen and fallen. The Chinese dynasties have passed, goodness knows how many of them. The Ottoman Empire has risen and fallen. The Belgian, French, Spanish, British empires have risen and fallen. America has risen and is now falling. The Soviet Union has come and gone. Communism has been embraced and fallen. Monarchy has been the de facto regime of every government pretty much in the world and is now on its way out of almost every country in the West. It comes and it goes. And we like to think, well, we'll be the one who's different. We'll achieve something that lasts forever. I'm sorry, we won't. All the rest of this will pass. It will cease. Our civilization will fall. Our lives will end, our work will become dust. We are grown-ups, we need to recognise this. What endures is Christ and everything that is in him. That is the hope of Christianity. We live, my friends, in an age that seeks to deny death. We hide it. We put people who are sick in hospitals so they can be healed, but also, I am convinced, so that they are out of sight for the healthy. We deny death. Jesus Christ does not deny death. Christianity does not deny death. Christianity accepts that death is real, that the destruction of everything that we achieve is real, but looks beyond it to resurrection. If I can put it this way, Jesus did not deny death, he defied it. And rose to life again. He has life in him, and if we are in him, he gives life to us. The one man in history who has defied death is Jesus Christ. And he offers to do the same for anyone who will come and be in him. God is love, St. John says. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Love endures because it is who God is. The eternal one. The one who gives strength. The God of little is the same God who says, I will give strength to you. We can endure forever if we are in him and becoming like him. My friends, there will come a time, I think I've done an alright job as your pastor, there will come a time when someone else comes along and they will probably exceed me in every way. That is the way it should be. To the point where the memory of me will pass. I cannot tell you who was the vicar of this church 60 years ago. What matters is not what we achieve, but who we are in Christ. What will remain forever is who we have become in our standing with Christ. If we achieve more than anyone else alive at this moment, but do not become like Christ, then we have achieved nothing.
Abrahams won the 100 metres in 1924. Let me ask you who won in 1928. Does anybody know? Fastest man in the world, 1928? 1932? 1936 was Jesse Owens. We know that because of Hitler. Bit of a break. 1948, anybody? 52? Fastest man in the world in 1952? From 56? 1960? 1964? Fastest man in the world in 1964? 1968? 1972? Terrorists at the Olympics. Remember them. Well done. They've managed to endure. 2000, 2004, 2008, who was 8, so someone say 8, Bolt was 8, I think Bolt was 12 was his first Olympics, so so far we've got the fastest man in the world since 1924, we've got Harold Abrahams, Jesse Owens, Usain Bolt, and we know that there were terrorists in 1972, no he was the 4 minute mile, he didn't do the 100 meter dash. There was a Scottish guy who did it one year. There we go. That's immortality for you. There was a Scottish guy who did it one year. (laughs) No, he was a middle distance runner. Right? Before this descends into fast. What we do in life will not endure. The fastest man in the world, and none of us can name who it was for almost every Olympic year since 1924. I'm not talking about forever, I'm talking about the last 90 years. The pinnacle of athletic achievement. What matters is who we are. What does this mean practically? Well, if you want to work at something, work at it. But the, other most important, but the most important thing you can work at is loving others. Right? This is a decision. It takes work. It doesn't just happen. Sanctification is what the Bible calls it. Becoming like Jesus. It's a work of grace. God changes you, but we have to cooperate with him. St. Paul puts it this way. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do. This is Anthony Joshua. I was going to say this is me. It's me on a weekend. Gleaming. I do a boxer-sized class. Pretty sure that I'm the same as Joshua. <laughs> this is Anthony Joshua. Anthony Joshua is the. Uh, I know I'm. I don't know if he's the undisputed heavyweight champion. He owns. He has three belts. Three belts. The guy we don't see very often is the guy next to him. Does anybody know the name of the guy next to him? His trainer. His trainer. That's not his name. That's such a cheat. <laughs> the guy next to him is Rob McCracken. Without him, Anthony Joshua would not have won anything, right? This is from the BBC. And now, with, this man, with his man, the most recognisable active boxer on the earth, Rob McCracken says there are moments when he administers reminders if Joshua is not delivering what he needs. He has to go to bed on time, which no one wants to do, no later than 10.30pm, adds McCracken. Then it's weighing yourself, working with the nutritionist, then he has to listen to me, tell him how bad he's been during the session. Then it's studying things, strategy, that carrying, out in tra- carrying that out in training, implementing it in spas. If you don't, I will groan and moan and whine at you. 
When you're tired, with a very big head guard on, and you have three sparring partners who only do a few rounds each, ready to come at you flat out. It's never ending. If I tell him that wasn't good enough, I'm sure he thinks, oh, leave it out, will you? He goes a bit quiet with me. That's a nice way of saying it. Anthony Joshua, the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, he has a guy who says to him, how are you doing today, champ? How are you getting on? How's your regime going? Did you go to bed last night? Did you get up and train this morning? Becoming like Christ takes honesty and self-discipline. We need others to be honest with us. We need people who will call us on our behaviour. Life groups are good for this. It doesn't need to be deep all the time, but we do need people we can be real with and be serious about faith with. If you don't have anyone in your life who will tell you when you've done something stupid and wrong, you need that person. I wonder how many of Joshua's contemporaries in the gym just thought to themselves, I only want to know what it is, the co- I only want the coach to tell me what I want to hear. And they didn't become heavyweight champion of the world. I'll give you a, a political example of this to prove it's not just boxing. Uh, it was said during the uh, 2015 election race, and this is not me commenting on who you should have voted for, but one of the differences between uh, Ed Miliband's camp and David Cameron's when they wrote it up later was that Cameron said to his advisors, I want you to literally hit me with the worst arguments that are going to come against me. I want to hear all the time why I'm wrong so that I can think about what I'm going to say back. Right Now you might think David Cameron was an idiot, he shouldn't have won the election. Ed Miliband undoubtedly does that. When it was written up what Miliband's strategy was, every time someone said something negative, he said, oh, do you have to be so negative? And he lost. Right, now if you are somebody on the left of politics, God bless you, you might think that was a tragedy. In that case, he should have worked harder and been willing to have people who challenged him. We need that as Christians. We need to be as serious about becoming like Christ as David Cameron was about becoming PM. And Anthony Joshua is about becoming the world heavyweight boxing champion. We can be intentional about developing insight into ourselves. Take ten minutes, three times a week to stop, go away from everyone. Think about three things you're grateful for from the day and three things you regret. Then ask God to change you. Finally, look for one other person you can bless this week. One other person. Start small. Is there one other person whom is not my wife or husband, where I get a reward from it if I'm nice to them, whom I can bless and do something nice for? Then the next week, do it again. And then the third week, do two people. Love is a habit. The most important goal of the Christian life is not what we can do, but who we become.